We're joined today by my colleague and friend, Megan Bond. Megan is the chair of the DFL Environmental Caucus and has considerable experience and knowledge pertaining to the environmental movement in general, environmental issues in Minnesota, and in particular, issues that are most relevant in her own front yard in the far northern reaches of the North Star State. Megan is a lawyer and she lives in International Falls up on the Canadian border. Megan, welcome to the podcast. I want to know, how did you originally get into the environmental movement to begin with? So it kind of happened by happenstance, just um, an internship I fell into through, um, you know, friend back in high school and college working for the Las Vegas Valley Water District and Southern Nevada Water Authority. And it was really just during when we had this horrible population boom. I don't want to say the population boom was horrible, but we had a big population boom that led to like an extreme use of water in the Colorado River and the Colorado River Basin and just how the Colorado River was allocated. So if you have been paying attention, it's all over, you know, international news like Mead, which was the world's largest man-made lake for a long time is now dry. It's like a river, right? It's like a creek in some areas, I feel like. Um, and even just the past few years, it's just gotten worse and worse. Um, so I really kind of worked on like that, which was, you know, like I said, it was more on the internship at, um, avenue, but it really just did get me into the public policy um, and of the environmental movement. And then just wherever I've been, I kind of um, found myself into it, um, whether it was Southern California or here or um, in Minnesota. Well, I'm, right now I'm in Las Vegas. So I say here in Nevada. Here in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am. I'm visiting some family. So, um, and then, so whether it's been here in Las Vegas or out in California when I lived there, and then when I moved up to Minnesota, um, a couple of years into law school, I just found myself getting back involved in it too. I was, uh, on the environmental law society for all three board of the environmental law society for all three years of law school. Um, and then I kind of, and like you were talking about like science-based everything, my actual educational background is actually in healthcare administration, healthcare policy. That's what I did in undergrad and focused in, in law school. And when I was doing my master's degree too. And so that's another science overlap. And then the environmental movement, healthcare brings a lot of the public health, um, issues into play too mm -hmm. so that's been a big passion of mine when dealing with like clean air mm -hmm. and then um when i started getting involved at the dfl it just kind of naturally was a fit and um i'd known some people that are involved in our caucus and on our board from prior um nonprofits and activism work i'd done with the environmental movement in minnesota like when i was working for uh, voyagers national park association and doing some work with friends of the boundary waters was a good ally of ours and mcea minnesota center for environmental advocacy advocacy um so basically when i was with voyagers which is now voyagers conservancy um really started falling into that meeting a lot of allies including Kristen larson who's on our board so i've known Kristen for a long time mm -hmm. and uh lawrence and sandy sandoval too okay now this is an international podcast and okay. I, I think we have at least one listener in australia um, wow. and so i just want to i want to i want to um add some information the dfl minnesota is a state it is uh, people on the okay. coast don't necessarily know that. I remember when I was a kid being confused. I thought right. Omaha was a state and Minnesota was a city. Um, but <laughs> they were, and they were both in the same place. The um, and all I knew about it was what was been, I, all I knew was Omaha, uh, neutral to Omaha from watching Marlon Perkins TV show. Uh, watching the TV show, yeah. And we and we would hear news every winter a few times from your city where you live, International Falls. We'd hear about it a few times a year, right? When, when you would break the record cold for that day. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and the DFL means the Democratic Party in Minnesota. Yeah, so Las Vegas is a city in the state of Nevada right. um, towards the southern part. Um, when I was in Southern California, I kind of lived all over L.A. County, um, Los Angeles County, and then in Orange County, too, just south of that. So, um, and then I moved to Minneapolis, which is a city in the state of Minnesota. <laughs> right. And now I live in International Falls, which is a town i'll call it a town it's, i don't know if it's quite a city um up in uh on the canadian border of north central minnesota and you know they've got the nickname the icebox of the nation because we frequently break records for low temperatures and such things negative 55 and with real fuel without wind without uh wind chill and that's negative 55 fahrenheit 
Nay, it is very <laughs> close to negative 55 Celsius. Around the time you get to negative 40, both Fahrenheit and Celsius, the numbers start to almost match up. Right. So, and it hardly matters um, anymore at that point. Anyway. And at that point, you're just staying inside yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. And and the and that is the nearest American thermometer to the Arctic Circle outside of Alaska. Is that we used to have well, a big thermometer. It's not there anymore. But, really right. Stuff. But it's also the gateway community to uh, Voyager's National Park, which is Minnesota's right. only national park. Right. And that's key. And and it's it's just worth noting that in Minnesota, we call everything a city. Like if you go list, like everything is technically a city. And there are there are something like 450 cities in Minnesota and yeah. the 30 smallest ones have zero people in them. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, because there is this like like League of Minnesota cities or whatever with that. But having grown up in a town of or in a city that started out as about less than half a million, that's now close to two, and then moving to the biggest city in America, <laughs> and then ending up in Minneapolis, which is LA, right. ending up in Minneapolis, which is another half million, you know, right. I, I consider International Falls a town. So you have interesting perspectives then on the geography of our species as it fills spaces and takes up resources. And stuff. Everything from like yeah. suburban sprawl to cramped cities to small yeah. towns, yeah. And, and the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Nevada. Nevada. There's a, um, my parents lived there for years, but they don't think they even know how to pronounce it. But um, it happens. <laughs> the uh, There's a there's a, a history museum at the university, or there used to be a history museum at the university. Okay. Anyway. And they had an exhibit on water many, many years ago when I first went out there to visit my parents when they moved out. Um, so this would have been in the, the 80s or something. And okay. they showed a, a postcard that had been produced in the early, early, early days when Las Vegas was a town. Like nobody lived there yet. And right. before casinos, everything, nothing had happened yeah. there yet. They yeah, casinos friend... didn't really come around until the early 30s. Yeah. And this is back, it might have even been called something different than Las Vegas. It might have been Silver City or something. I don't know. It probably was Las Anyway, there was a, a postcard that we were supposed to send east to your friends to get them to come out. And it showed a uh, touched up photograph, like those old fashioned photographs. It's actually a photograph, but it's also touched up to make it look uh -huh. fancy. And it's got all these geysers coming out of the ground. And it's where some real estate developers went out and poked down near the lake, where it's now, now where the reservoir is, down mm -hmm. near the reservoir, uh, maybe even where, maybe even under the reservoirs. I don't know. Um, uh, they poked these holes in the ground and artesian wells popped out. Okay. And ran for weeks or months, showing how much water there was here. Unfortunately, they had tapped into the aquifer and emptied it. Uh, okay. So then it was done. So nobody yeah. could build their developments and put wells down because the wells would be dry and they wouldn't have been. There was there was probably a decade of water there just under the surface. You but know, they, just, they just threw it out. Um, yeah, there's a place called the Las Vegas Springs Preserve. It's um, was set up by the Water District and it's pretty cool. And I, I'm not going to get into it, but if people want to Google it, um, it does have to do with some of the original groundwater that they found in Las Vegas. And it's right in the center of the city. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think I've been there at some point. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, so you ended up you and so uh, you. Why did you get into law? That, not that's what this podcast is about. But is there a connection to the environment and law here? No, no I just okay. went to law school. It's something I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, as you're making career choices when you're younger, um, it's kind of where I was headed and thought so for probably since middle school. And of course, you waver and not, but eventually going all the way through college it was decided that that's what i wanted to do was go to law school and then took a few years off after college um and worked and then went to law school that was just a career path i chose a long time ago mm -hmm. yeah so there must not be a lot of lawyers in international falls uh there's a handful of us handful, yeah there's um i think like four practicing full-time and a couple practicing part-time and then the judge and the county attorney and the assistant county attorney. Is International Falls a county seat? Yes. Okay. So that helps you because you're kind of live near the county seat. Right. Well, and it's interesting about Kuchichin County is that's where the county International Falls is in, is it's two thirds wetlands. Mm -hmm. So trying to build and expand is difficult. Um, and um, it's Kuchichin's actually the second largest county in the state of Minnesota next to St. Louis, which is the county right next door. And that's like where the Misabi Iron Range, most of the um, Boundary Waters uh, Canoe Area Wilderness and then city of Duluth mm -hmm. are um, 
are in St. Louis County. And that's like the biggest County, I think East of the Mississippi river as well. So it's pretty big, but it's two thirds wetlands and it's only about 13 million, 13,000, excuse me, God, not 13 million. We're going to have people in this. 13,000 people that live there. So it's, it's rural. Can you explain to our listeners what the boundary waters is? So back in the sixties and seventies, there was an advocacy group. And so in the superior national forest, which is a huge national forest in Northern Minnesota, um, they developed a chunk of it. They took about a million acres and uh, just made it complete wilderness area. And so it's known as a recreation area, but you can't take a motorboat in there. So everybody goes in there by canoe or kayak, typically canoes. And there's just like, I don't even know how many lakes. I say there's like a hundred, but I, I don't honestly couldn't tell you the exact number um, of lakes. And they use canoe around and portage and camp. And uh, they're pretty strict on mechanical stuff. You can't have a bicycle. Well, I think you can have a bicycle in certain parts of it, but um, there's a group that really advocates for a lot of the hiking there, but um it's just a complete wilderness area you don't have cell phone service um and it, it's just nice to get out there and quiet and camp and then right above it is quetico um which is the canadian version of it and you're going to see even fewer campsites and um, people and stuff so it's really re- and then uh to the west of it is voyagers national park and so you're going to see a lot of the same flora and fauna rocks and stuff like that as you see in the boundary waters but instead of having like a hundred little lakes we have five big ones and then mm-hmm. several little and then several little lakes on the interior but when i say several i think there's like seven mm-hmm. On yeah, the interior yeah. peninsula. And the interior peninsula, the Cabotogama Peninsula, is what they call proposed wilderness area. Mm-hmm. So it's treated like wilderness area, like the boundary waters. Okay. And 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 you uh could you tell us what are the main threats to this area right now? I guess I should just mention quickly this Lake Superior is the world's largest freshwater entity. Yes, there and, it is the world's yeah the top five are the United States Great Lakes. Well, and, United and, States and Canadian Great Lakes. Yeah, it, it's biggest of the Great Lakes. It's the deepest, coldest, cleanest, biggest, and wettest of the Great Lakes. You keep mentioning that the area in your county is wetland, most of it or a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's actually true to some extent in much of Minnesota. The southern yeah. part, not so much, but much of Minnesota is. But you know, when I worked in the rainforest with the FA pygmies, I made a discovery, a couple mm-hmm. of discoveries, but one of them was that the pathways they took, although they're perfectly straight paths and they don't seem to do anything winding around, they strategically avoid almost all wetlands. Yeah. To avoid having to walk through a marsh. And also they're kind of dangerous for other reasons. Like they're literally as quicksand. Like in the old Tarzan movies, that's yeah. part, that part's real. <laughs> you, you can right. fall into a hole. Oh, the never ending story. That was the sad thing. You can, thing you can get out. It's not something. But, but, um, the, but they, if, if there's, if you went off trail, in the interior forest, you don't walk into a wetland within 300 meters. Right. Okay. And that's actually true in Minnesota. If you are driving, people drive along, there's pine trees and spruce trees and maple trees, and you think it's all nice woodlands. But if you leave the road in any of the northern counties, you find yourself in a mire or a swamp or a wetland mm-hmm. pretty much right much away. So. As yeah. If you didn't, if you got past a ditch, which is next to the road. Um, yeah. So uh, that in that whole area is all this water. And all that water that's in Lake Superior goes through that land on the way to Lake Superior through dozens of rivers that flow over the edge, right? Right. Um, in the St. Louis Walk County, in the St. Louis River watershed, that's true. Um, but as you get a little further north, it actually is, um, you're above the Laurentian Divide mm-hmm. and you're, the curvature of the earth goes that way and um, goes north. And so a lot of what the Rainy River watershed is, which is what encompasses um the majority of the boundary waters, all of Voyagers National Park, and then into Lake of the Woods, which is one of the biggest water. It's one of the biggest watersheds in the world, actually. If you look at a map of the United States, you see about this much. But in all actuality, it goes way up into Canada, which is yeah. huge. And eventually it flows into Lake of the Woods and then up the river into Lake Winnipeg. And it'll eventually end up in the Hudson Bay and the Arctic Ocean. It's the water that's where we are. Right. So that's a huge amount. And yeah, then if, and, amount. And there's a little, a little area on, on, a, on the rest of the state flows into the upper is in the is the upper mississippi is the upper mississippi or the lake superior watershed yeah, yeah. So and then, then so there's some point in the state where if you dump some water in the ground it could go to the arctic it could go to the gulf of mexico or it could go to the atlantic yeah 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's right. Kind of, and it's in St. Louis County, just North of the Mesabi iron range. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is an area where, when we do things, when we humans do things that are messy, we have a chance of ruining just a huge percentage of the world. Yeah. A huge percentage of it. Yeah. Right. So what are the threats up there? Okay. Well, there's a few, I know the one you want to get to is a big one, but I'll touch on some small ones first. Um, you know, first and foremost, we're having huge global warming issues up here, climate change, um, with the fish are, are swimming deeper because the water temperature is warming, which is going to be terrible and it's going to deplete the fish supply, which is a huge part of recreation up here. Um, and then that's causing some really toxic algae blooms as well. So those are huge threats to the area just based on the larger picture of climate change that's really drastically changing the um, scope of where we are. Um, another one that's coming up right now is a huge project that um, there's two, um, now there's three, four that they're trying to propose throughout the state, but the two that are big is um, they're these sulfide or um, sulfide mining, copper nickel sulfide mining projects. And basically we have a huge supply in what's known as the Duluth complex, which goes way far south, even south of Lake Superior. And that's what they want to tap into with what's called the PolyMet NorthMet project. And then in the Rainy River watershed, which is just to the next one, and that's the one that's above the Laurentian Divide, and that encompasses most of the boundary waters and all of Voyagers National Park, it has, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's called Twin Metals. And that's the same kind of project. The mineral deposits there, are, I don't think are as rich as they are in the Duluth complex, or even if they are rich, that they're just not as big as they are in the Duluth complex. Um, and I'm, I'm, gonna just say to google or look up duluth complex um mm. so because just for the sake of time um and they uh want to tap into these two things um problem is it's never been done safely and there have been just some really disastrous results from it and we can just start with some of the um, bad actors, as they're called. And that's the fact that Glen Polymet is actually owned by a company called Glencore out of Switzerland, which has just a horrible reputation for just doing going into small villages, having human rights violations, um, just tearing up their um, villages and stuff like that. And we're talking, you know, South America, Africa, Russia, China, um, places that don't have any um environmental protections in their countries uh, for a wide variety of reasons. And then um, the other company is uh, that's, that's doing the twin, that wants to do the twin metals project is called as Anifagastra and they're out of Chile, Chile. They have a similar reputation to Glencore when it comes to things like that. Um, they're two separate mines. Twin metals wants to be a below ground mine and do a, um, they don't want to be, have a pit for, their um, tailings they want to do a pile and then polymet's going to be an above ground mine kind of more the similar ones that you see as iron ore mines taconite mines um and they're they want to have a pit for their tailings a tailings basin um so it, it, it's two watersheds two projects but one similar threat that's a big one that's happening right now that's um been working on it and the thing is and these are interesting projects you can look up the Mount Polly outside of Vancouver. That was just a horrendous, horrendous project. Um, it's still that they've made, managed to get it back up and um, operational a little bit, but the groundwater there is just completely destroyed. You can't, people can't have wells or anything like that for potable water. Um, and then uh, in Brazil, a few years ago, the dam collapsed and it's the same dam that they want to put in as the PolyMet project. And that dam collapse, I think, um, was responsible for the loss of about 240 lives. Mm -hmm. So these are big threats up there right now. Um, fortunately, a lot of the environmental advocates have just been amazing between um, Friends of the Boundary Waters Groups, Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, um, Water Legacy, a few other groups have really been just really stepping up and taking the lead, uh, Duluth for Clean Water is another one, on the litigation and stuff on these, um, trying to fight the permitting, trying to fight the environmental assessment, environmental impact statement that had to be done. 
um, in order to get the PolyMet project and then the permits. And as it turns out, there's quite a few scandals that came out of the um, State Department of Natural Resources, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and issuing some of these permits. And so that's been really tied up in litigation. They've been doing a very successful job of getting several of those permits overturned as they're going through the court system. Twin Metals is on federal land, so that's a little bit different in that the state DNR says they're going to do their own environmental impact statement on it, but it really is tied up with the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. Um, Bureau of Land Management's within the Department of Interior, U.S. Forest Service is within the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, so what's been good about that one is with the changeover in presidential administrations, Recently, um, at the end of the Obama administration, they um, revoked their lease, lease, lease renewals, which they should have been done long ago. They should have never renewed. And then the Trump administration promptly reinstated them. And the Biden administration has gone back and um, taken them away. And they're um, through a two-year environmental assessment, peer review environmental assessment that the Trump administration had canceled. So um, that is kind of the situation in a nutshell um, and in broad pictures. And so, um, yeah, we've been working on those for, what year is it, 2022? 14 years different organizations have been working on these projects and trying to really um you know stop them before they start excellent summary i actually learned from that summary some things and you know you and i are both members of the you're the, you're the chair of the of the dfl environmental caucus which does environmental advocacy within the democratic party within minnesota yes and i'm a member of that caucus on the board as well yes but when i joined it a few several years ago I really knew nothing about any of this. I, my <laughs> entire interest is in energy transition and climate change. And I learned all about the mining and the problems of the mining as member, a member of that caucus. And th even that talk just now gave me some more information. Um, it's worth noting that there are three or four places, three or four events that happen, just like the Selma Bridge is known as a key moment in the um, equal rights movement in the United States. There's a few key moments that are noted as the origins, the multiple, but, you know, around the same time origins of the environmental movement. And one of those moments was having to do with iron mining and where they were putting the tailings on the North mm -hmm. Shore. Mm -hmm. So mining in Minnesota has been a driving force in the environmental movement in the past, since yes. it started. And, and it, yeah, and it still is because there is um, a lot of with the tailings basins and things that go out and they're affluent, affluent discharge. A lot of permits are required that too. And you can look up TMDL, the total daily maximum load, as well as some other discharges that go into that. The thing is, we have um, some native uh, wild, wild rice up here. It's a type of rice. It's very good if you ever eat it. You need some salt, though. It's pretty bland. But it works really well. It's got um, a really nice nutty flavor, though. It's, it's really got a really nice nutty flavor, but yeah. just add some salt and you can cook it with so many things. It's so good. Yeah. And it's good for you. And um, it's, it's really sacred to the um, Native American population up here in the Ojibwe's. And right now, a lot of these wild rice that grows in our lakes up here um, isn't safe to eat because of a lot of the discharge is not being monitored or um, enforced in a lot of these iron ore mines. Yeah. Having said that, it is iron ore mining, which really boomed up here during World War II. And a lot of people consider the Masabi Iron Range to have been a huge savior to World War II um, because of the fact that so many people were able to work in the factory and really um, increase the equipment for our military forces in during World War II. Um, but it's been a boom and bust industry. And Nevada is a mining state as well, um, mm -hmm. mostly silver and other types of ore. And I mean, just drive through the Western United States and not, not just Nevada, but you can find it in Arizona and California too. Um, these boom towns are now tourist attractions because they'd come, they'd extract everything out and they'd leave. Right. Difference is you come out here to Nevada, we got very little groundwater, especially mm -hmm. in the Southern part, Southern and Central parts of the state. As you move up, you get more, but you're in a different water basin up then too. And you're in the Great Basin at that point. And um, that, but like, so it's just completely different. It's a completely different type of mining that they want to do. And so this type of extraction has never been done in a 
as water rich of an area mm -hmm. as northern Minnesota because it's one of the most water groundwater rich areas. I think it is the most groundwater rich area in the United States. And it's, mm -hmm. I think, number five in the world. Don't quote me on that. That might be something you want to check into. But it's an incredibly groundwater rich area. Rich area. As I said, my own county is two thirds wetlands. Right. So, um, there's a lot of hesitation towards it for obvious reasons because of the fact that we have these protected wilderness areas and Lake Superior, all like we talked about all along the North Shore of Lake Superior into Lake Superior, the Boundary Waters Wilderness, the tons of wetlands that are in Superior National Forest, and then into Voyagers National Park. And something they've been saying with, um, we had a Voyagers Conservancy had a study done by a um, brilliant geologist named, hydrologist named, I think he's a geologist, named Tom Myers, and he's worked out of the University of Nevada, Reno, and now the University of Montana. Um, we had some overlap in career paths, but we never met. It was interesting. Um, and then, I mean, if there's a major disaster break out of Twin Metals, that stuff's going to go 100 miles, which will take it into Canada. Right. And, and there is, by the way, because um, it just started and we don't know much about it yet, because you're talking about about the Superior drainage and the Hudson Bay Arctic drainage, the Tamarack mines are also copper mines proposed for very nearby, but it just mm -hmm. happens to be over the divide into the Mississippi River. It does. It does. That one's new. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, you know what? I skipped a huge part of this that I should have said. During this extraction, it produces sulfur. That's what they said, copper, right. nickel, sulfur mining. Right. When sulfur mixes with water, it creates sulfuric acid, right. which turns your water that copper color, yeah. and it's just complete poison at that point. Now, the Tamarack is new, and that's further south near like what they call Aitken County, mm -hmm. and they want to pull a bunch of stuff out of there, and they're saying that what they really want out of there is the nickel. Yeah, more nickel, yeah. For electric cars. So they're trying to get Elon Musk and Tesla on board for helping with the Tamarack mine because they want the nickel for, uh, um, for you know, electric cars. Yeah. Let's just say this. There is enough copper and nickel in the world without needing to tap into these resources. Yeah. It's something that I, when I when I first started learning about this, I looked into it and I pretty closely and the actual geology because I do have some geology training. And I was surprised to see the numbers of how much copper and nickel there is in these deposits. Yeah, but it's very it's very little per unit area. Yeah, exactly. It, it, they're very large. The thing is, the deposits are extensive. Yeah, they're sort they of are. flat, very thin, flat um, uh, formations that dive into the earth at a fairly steep angle. So we don't know how far they go, but they go beyond our reach. But <laughs> they are um, the density of copper and nickel. And there's also titanium and a tiny bit of gold. Um, the density of these minerals is so low that you'd have to mine a lot to get to get them to get out en enough to make it worthwhile. And there are other. I mean, the, the thing is, we don't recycle copper to speak of. We don't. Uh, um, a little. We're and, at about a third of the copper recycling as they do in the EU in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, we um, salvage some, but we don't really do any. Yeah, we don't really do anything. And also, and um, this is just a family friend who, uh, you know, my husband calls him the copper pirate. He uh, mm -hmm. works for a company that travels the world and salvages copper. Mm -hmm. You know, he and I got into a conversation at a Christmas party when we were both in town a few years ago. And he's like, is the most unnecessary mine. Mm -hmm. He's like, it's just unnecessary. There's plenty out there. Plus, it's just a matter of getting it you get into these conversations and this is a very divisive issue where i live mm -hmm. and especially kind of south and to the east of where i live as well where there's been done a lot of mining they don't do mining in the county i live in we just have a national park that's downstream of where they want to do all this mining and one of the, the national park actually it has a borders canada to the lake three of the lakes are like actually two-thirds in canada a third in the united states Rainy Lake, what I live on, I think it's the 53rd largest body of water, freshwater. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It's huge. There's a, this issue has very been divisive amongst the, even within our political party, within the Democratic Party up north, in that, you know, mining's always been our way of life. Mining produces jobs, ancillary jobs, direct jobs. Well, 
this type of mining is going to be a boom and bust mining. It's not sustainable like some of the other mining they are doing up there. And um, the one of the reasons they use is all of a sudden these people who um, and have never really given a hoot about climate change before, aside from acknowledging that it exists, want to call those of us who are the environmental activists that are trying to protect our waters against this threat, um, you know, kind of hypocrites for saying that we're not willing to extract this for the use of wind turbines and such. Um, And it's kind of like, okay, um, but the other thing is going into this, there's air permits, there's affluent discharge permits, there's all these uh, there's dig all I can't even there's I don't know so many permits <laughs> I'm not gonna list them um but all of these starting with the air pollution the affluent discharger TMDLs is going to affect t- climate change mm-hmm. it's every little bit um it's not just our you know, switching out of coal and onto renewables. It's not just, you know, getting off your gasoline powered truck that gets 12 miles to the gallon and finding something that's more fuel efficient, hybrid or electric. It's not just putting solar panels on your house. It's a lot of things. And this is going to cause significant amount of air and water pollution. And at that point, that's all amounts to climate change. And we're already seeing huge effects for it in the Rainy River watershed, both in the Boundary Waters, Voyagers National Park, Lake of the Woods, all the way into the Boreal. It's just not what it used to be, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, it sounds, I think that people are going to be a little hopeful that in, with recent, at least for the next few years, we might be seeing more. There's been successes in fighting the copper mining. There and been. we may see that developing further. What are any other environmental issues that you are concerned with statewide, in particular up where you live? Up where I live, both the Boundary Waters and Voyagers National Park are what they call Class 1 Clean Air Act areas, meaning we're supposed to have pristine visibility. Now, we would love to have that all over the world, right? Ideally. Mm -hmm. Um, So, But what we get is regional haze, and it comes from a couple of coal-fired power plants, Clay Boswell and Sherco, and one of the mines on the North Shore. We've tried because the prevailing wind, it doesn't matter. It And so we're trying to get that done because, and then it's a twofer in the fact that we can get that shut down, get those coal plants shut down and start moving to renewables. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say let's shut down power plants, put people out of their jobs, anything like that. But at the same time, we need to make that shift and we need to start making that shift quickly. Um, so that's affecting air quality up here. We've been in litigation of it before and that was not successful, but every now and then we keep trying. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other threats that I have, it's because, and once again, this is just talking about where we're at is um, aquatic invasive species. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a lot up here and we try to keep that out there. And we recently found zebra mussels in the Black Bay area of um, Rainy Lake and we're trying to keep them out of everywhere else but i mean once they're there it's inevitable but not only is it just dangerous for your health but they eat all those good stuff in the water and all of a sudden oh we have wonderful water clarity well no that's because the zebra mussels have been eating all the good stuff which is really detrimental to fish health Mm -hmm. and fishing is a major recreational um activity up there um and all of this starts to add with um climate change the warming of the water like Mm -hmm. i said the warming of the water is causing fish to swim deeper and deeper and deeper, which is causing them to breed less, which is causing effects to the tourism in the area um, and the, just the fish health in general, um, because it's not just tourism that does it. There's, um, you know, uh, Native Americans and First Na- they're called First Nations in Canada that have the ability to net and make a huge profit off that. So a lot of times when you're eating your genuine Minnesota walleye mm-hmm. um, at your restaurant, which you get everywhere, guess where it comes from? And um up there and red not just up here but red lake and lake of the woods and some other places um the other thing we're seeing is um like i mentioned at the beginning was are these algae talk these toxic algae blooms Mm -hmm. and oh god i have pictures of them just being disgusting i mean the water is just green and there's it's bubbling and it's just washing up onto shore and it's awful and it's toxic i mean it'll kill your dog Mm-hmm. if your dog drinks it um it makes i don't want to just say recreation impossible but just a variety of things nobody wants to be in that water 
you know, you see it and they're doing more studies and it's a lot of the studies you're going to see are coming out of Lake of the Woods, which is good because it's the same watershed. They have similar problems, just a, you know, different lake. Um, and a lot of the National Park Service scientists are really concentrating on this too. And, you know, just looking at what it is and what causes it. Now, what can we do to stop it? Obviously, we need to address climate change on a larger level, like you're talking about with energy mm -hmm. um, usage, um, which is a big deal. Um, the, God, there's so many up there. Where do I keep going? <laughs> uh, electric cars and transportation you know just being so rural it's not a big possibility for us to own electric cars which a lot, i think a lot of people would if they could um so it would be really great to see a lot of those electric cars getting better mileage and not needing charging yeah i think that we're, we're seeing progress there for one thing we are definitely yeah i was talking to some engineers in at mn 350 events about the cold weather conditions and the yeah. engineer said, if you, we were talking about trucks, we we're talking about school, small school buses and, and um, service vehicles for use. Well, things like whatever, even ambulances, but things like, um, you know, public works vehicles, right. cherry pickers and that kind of thing. They make the framework for those things. And they're all, their entire customer right now, their only customer right now is Sacramento, which is transferring every single thing over to these vehicles right now, as mm -hmm. California generally is doing. Yeah, they um, are. 2030, what is it? 2035 yeah. is their goal to stop yeah. having gasoline powered vehicles. Right. So I said, what do you, what happens if you're in Duluth and you want, you want electric buses and it gets cold up there? And they said, well, do we just design it to work there? How do you do yeah. that? Well, there's a battery that takes 10% of your energy. So you get 10% less energy and it heats itself. So right. you just put that battery in instead of the other batteries. Um, <laughs> so there are solutions to these things. And I noticed that, you know, uh, we know we have a friend in common that we worked with, the company that does solar. Robert, American, Robert Blake. Robert Blake. So Robert Blake got this grant. And basically, is, let's say you live on the, on, the, on, the, on the Red Lake Reservation or Leech Lake Reservation or any of the other northern reservations and you're Native American. Where do you want to go in your car? So they right. sort of do a survey. Where are you going to go? Well, you're going to go to the Twin Cities, maybe. You're also going to go to Duluth and to in various other places. So they made mm -hmm. a map and said, we're putting charging stations so that you can do that. So that's not going to be that's... financial falls exactly, but no. it won't take much more to get them up there. We're going to have the charging stations everywhere. Right. And, and you're seeing a few up north. I've seen a few Teslas around that people can just drive around town. And um, I don't know if we're going to see them in inclement weather or going on long road trips, but um it would be great if we could start moving some of that up there because the fact that you know transportation is the number one um contributor to climate change in minnesota at least right um is your cars and buses and trucks right um so one of the other ones and then let's just talk about some of the other i mean this is just a this summer we had a horrible flood it was a once in a century flood that things happen but you at got, the end you of the day personally flooded on that didn't you i had yeah, I this will tell you where how much groundwater we have. Um, I'll get there. Is we had a horrible, horrible rainstorm where we got seven inches of rain, which up north in the rainforest is a lot, but you know it happens from time to time. But it happened so early in the season that the ground was still frozen, mm. and then you know just a series of unfortunate events post that led to the worst flood the area's ever seen um and recorded history but let's just face it it's the worst it's ever seen um with climate change happening um i'm not going to say that you know 200 years ago when we weren't recording this stuff that it didn't happen but um I, i'm going to just wager a guess um and this just goes to show you how much groundwater is have we were able to keep i live on the lake rainy lake um we were able to keep the lake out of our house because we're on pretty flat ground and we're not even on a floodplain. But the groundwater table was so high that that's what came into our house mm -hmm. from the melting ground and the rainstorm is that's what came into my house. So I cut, there was like three little mini rivers just getting into my house from all kinds of directions. Mm -hmm. And because the groundwater was officially higher than my house and water always wants to search for the lowest place. Right. And so, I mean, that's just how much groundwater we have. Yeah. That's is it? Yeah. And, and as I recall, it took weeks for that water to go away. It, months. Yeah. Weeks, they said it time. took, it, yeah, let's see. It started rising probably in, in a weird way in mid-May. And I'm like, wow, this is really high. Um, it hit its apex probably in mid-June. And it was when at the end of July, when the water levels start 
usually start going down, it was at about at the highest of what we call the rule curve. Okay. Um, so, so, that's, so when people think about a flood, like Duluth had a really bad flood a few years ago that hit the zoo and marshed all the animals out and stuff. But that was a thing that happened. And then a few days later, it was gone. The damage was there. I think most people yeah. think of a flood is working like that. This flood took a month to, and a half to go up and a month and a half to go down. It was your our slowest. It's probably like one of the slowest moving natural disasters you could think of. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's and just amazing. yeah, I mean, there's people that are going to be dealing with property damage for a long time with this. And I would say a long time, probably a couple of years. But, yeah. you know, I mean, our, ours is we're getting together pretty good and we're figuring it out how to deal with it for the next time it happens. And that's the same, same thing as I'm not saying if this is happening again, I'm saying the yeah. next time it happens, because that's yeah. just, this is one of the major effects of climate change is these extreme weather events. And we're seeing, you know, warm winter, it's either a horribly warm winter or horribly cold winter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's no in between. There's never like a nice normal winter where, yeah, we have a few weeks of where it's really, really cold. And then we get a few, we get a little January thaw, but you know, it, it it's just worse than normal. Yeah. And there's years we barely see any snow. And there's a lot of people that want to do a lot of winter recreation. They always, ha- it's getting so bad that normally they could do it closer to home, Mm-hmm. um down in southern minnesota not anymore not anymore they're all coming up here because we have snow it's like it's like our our minnesota our famous minnesota meteorologist paul douglas calls it weather whiplash <laughs> so there used to be a pretty big fishing contest on big lake which is down here near yep, i know big lake yep. yeah that fishing contest has not been run for five years they permanently canceled it um i understand they canceled the eel pout contest they did um they canceled the epow Burbit contest on Leech Lake, which is um, near Walker, Minnesota. It's yeah. a cute town. Um, they canceled it initially because of COVID. The first year right. was they yeah. canceled it was because of the pandemic and being close to each other. Um, and then, yeah, just a variety of other reasons they've um, canceled it. So they've done that. Um, and then, like, yeah, we as far as like the governor's fishing opener goes, mm-hmm. it was always risky having it up here. Um, because fishing, there's a big governor. The governor does goes out on fishing opener. It's a big thing, and a bunch of people go out. And that's the day that um, walleye fishing is officially open in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, it's like the most important holiday in the state. Yeah, which, and it's which, all it, it's Mother's uh, Day weekend as well. It occurs on Mother's Day, which is the second most important holiday. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, and so it, it was always kind of a risk having it up here as to whether or not the lakes would be open. And mm-hmm. um, the water right. levels would be high from, enough to go from out. Ice. Put the, yeah, open, open being open ice. from ice. Yeah, open melted. Ice. Yeah, <laughs> and right. having the navigational buoys being able to put in um, is the water right. level going to be high enough? But now we're kind of like, well, you know, maybe we can. It would still be a risk, but it'd be less of a risk. Most of the time, it's open now, and you know, it's it's a big tourist area, so we're always looking for a means of economic development and tourist increase, but do it in a conservative way. Um, the conservative friendly way yeah. um cannot, because you yeah. have to one cannot overstate to the non minnesotan the importance of walleye fishing it's like in <laughs> vermont and massachusetts if you're listening from vermont or massachusetts looking at fall colors not quite as important as walleye fishing if you're from maine the deer and moose hunts which everyone engages in not quite as important as walleye fishing because not only is walleye fishing what everybody does but as you mentioned before, there's an economy based on it. There's yeah. a native economy based on it. Yeah. And it's, um, it, I mean, it isn't, and it isn't just Minnesotans. I mean, Minnesota is flooded, not just with water, but with Iowans and Nebraskans. And people from Southern <laughs> Wisconsin come here to do walleye fishing. So and they go up a, into Canada too. And they um, go to Canada too. Actually, the ca- Canadian walleye fishing is a lot better. But, um, but it's it's quite it's really important, and it's uh, it and, and the walleye eat a kind of fish that is becoming rare because of climate change effects on that fish, uh, right? And and you know their their bait fish are, are are dying off because they because they normally go below they normally go deep in the lakes to stay in cold water, and we're just running out of cold water in those lakes anyway. Yeah, exactly. We're running out of cold water. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I mean, there's other issues we could talk about, but we probably have spent enough time on this. Yeah. Um, ATVs, pipelines. Oh, yes. Um, well, yeah, ATVs, pipelines. Pipeline wasn't so much in my watershed. Right. It was yeah. um, next to me and just south of me. But I did a lot of work on that one where there's a line three that was coming in. Another huge line, um, pipeline yeah. that was going to tap into the 
not tap into, but increase the amount of um, crude oil they're pulling out of the Alberta tar sands. And there was, and it was violating treaty law with um, Native Americans in the area. Um, most, and they wouldn't settle. So there was a lot of people out there doing the right thing and protesting. And um, I work as a defense attorney, attorney doing a lot of public interest law. Um, so I, while I typically work with a lot of mentally ill and chemically dependent people, um, I had the good fortune of representing 37 of these uh, water protectors last year in court. And um, I had one of the only acquittals um, wow. in trial. There was a couple, what they call, you can look it up, motions for directed verdicts or judgments, notwithstanding the verdict, um, or uh, motions for directed verdict that you put on after the state puts on its case. Um, so the defense doesn't have to because they say the state hasn't met their burden. So there was two or three of those. And then um, I didn't go that route. I, I, I saw the trial all the way through and uh, had an acquittal on a public nuisance charge. So, Great. Yeah, yeah. That, that is something because uh, our pipe, we have more pipelines in Minnesota, more miles of pipeline in Minnesota, even before that line was built, yeah, than exactly. any other state in the union that doesn't produce oil or gas. Yeah, it, because it, the Alberta tar sands, they're just piping right, you know, pulling them out. And line three was a replacement project. It wasn't a new project, but the new route was really violating a lot of old standing treaties with, especially with the White Earth Nation, um, mm -hmm. that um, were, uh, that this rerouting of it and all it did was increase the amount of oil that they could pull out of it by i think is it 25 percent or 75 percent it was a lot yeah it was close to doubling uh, yeah something like yeah. that and yeah, yeah. I, I, had a, I had a route that drove you past the pipeline construction oh, and, it, and it is it, it's a replacement but it's not a replacement in seats it's a it's a different yeah and that's the thing so it, yeah well yeah aside from the northern part of it right that comes in from the canadian porter a lot of it was in a different location that construction was just a mess i would drive past it and um as i go south for work and because i i practice law in more counties south of me than i do in my own county and um i as i was driving you know it's just the construction was just a mess yeah. and they had the largest aquifer breach in mm -hmm. minnesota history yeah and I'll tell through. you, yeah. there was a lot of politicians from out of the area that weren't really in this whole uh, mining fight, pipeline fight from up here in the area with this, the same thing of this union jobs versus or right. just jobs in general versus um, protecting the environment and um, which whatever um, that were like, oh, yeah, I know it seems like a great opportunity, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> Last summer happened summer 2021 happened yeah mm -hmm. a lot of them were singing a different tune a lot of them just came one and I, i'm not gonna name names but one that i was talking to this past spring um who was a state senator out of this uh, west metro he uh even just said straight up i was wrong mm -hmm. after seeing what happened last summer you were right i was wrong yeah pipelines in minnesota more jobs for people from texas and that's it is they were all coming up from Texas and New Orleans because this is what they do. Right. This is right. their specialty. There, there was, was a, very few little local jobs made out of this. There was a time in the past. I'm actually doing a writing project right now that, that overlaps with the uh, Lovecraft's um, Call of Cthulhu stories or a rewrite of that. Uh -huh. And in those days, you probably don't, maybe you don't know the story, but one of the things that happens in that early, early the origin of horror, the genre, is mm -hmm. from this, this story he wrote. And in the story, young men go off to sea. That's what they did in those days. Right. Whaling or shipping. And one of the boats gets eaten by a monster, right? That's why it's a horror story. In these days, young men go off to frack or to build pipelines. That's what yeah. they do. And, and, and it's, it's a subset of the culture. Oklahoma, Texas, like I said, Louisiana, that's where these men come from mostly. Mm -hmm. Like probably everywhere, but mostly that's where the companies yeah, are. Yeah, Texas. Most of the ones that came up from and that were working on the line three um project last year came from from louisiana and texas okay, yeah and i mean just like let's with the fracking go down to oklahoma who has there's never been earthquakes in oklahoma before they started fracking in there right right that's, that's exactly i i mean yeah. there's earthquakes in california i grew up and are not i mean grew up in nevada so we'd get the little bit of the earthquakes and some of the aftershocks but i mean i spent um like 10 years of my adult life in Southern California, we had earthquakes out there because there's on, we're on fault lines, right. you know? Um, 
they're not on fault lines in Oklahoma. Uh, It's just crazy. So, I mean, we don't need to pull more oil out of the ground. And it's been a big argument with people. And some of them, eventually, they just start proving my point Mm -hmm. of saying, well, you know, there's a lot of weird weather events that have just been happening more and more the past like 10 years. I'm like, yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm well aware. It's not just weird. And it's not like a coincidence that it's been the past 10 years. Right. Yeah. So yeah. And you think that part of it might be that we're pulling too much oil out of the ground? I don't know. Yeah. If you think think about it, it, how much photosynthesis and how many tens or hundreds of millions of years of time that plants a little portion of the byproduct of what plants do and some animals ended up in peat and oil and gas and we are taking it out at a rate that's like a thousand times ten thousand times faster right well megan thanks this has been a great conversation it has great thank Um, you yeah it's been great working with you on the environmental caucus and thanks for all the work you're doing to help save our our planet our water and our state this is Mike Hobrick, and I'm going to talk to Greg Bladen about the Reserve Mining Company case along the North Shore. I just had a long conversation with Megan Bond. If things go as we expect, listeners to this podcast have heard that conversation already. And now we're moving on to the next topic. And when we, I talked to Megan, we talked a lot about mining in northern Minnesota. And although we made reference to the earlier are in mining and its importance in the in the development of the environmental movement. We've mainly focused on copper sulfide, copper sure. nickel sulfide mining, which isn't being done now, but it's being threat to be done in northern Minnesota. And we talked a lot about that. Um, but you have been researching the Reserve Mining Company incidents. Right. Why don't you tell right. us what what's that about? Well, I'll just give you a little bit of background because you referenced the iron mines. Um, but originally, there were three main iron ranges in northeastern Minnesota. There was the Vermilion Range, the Cuyuna Range, and the Mesabi Range. And they started mining iron in Minnesota in the 1870s. And a lot of the steel from for the United States came from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and in the Iron Range in Minnesota. By the 1950s, though, iron was running out um, in the Iron Range, high-quality iron ore that that came out of the Vermilion Range being had been taken in the Mesabi Range. There was still quite a bit of iron, but it was tied up in a type of ore called um, taconite, which is a low grade iron ore. It's not as easy to extract. And so the process for extracting iron from taconite, since it's about 30 to 35% um, iron and the rest is rock, is to crush it up in really fine dust and take these huge magnets. And then the magnets would take the dust that was iron, and then they would have to do something to dispose of the taconite. These are called tailings because that was pretty much what was left over. It was like the tail end of the process. And in the 1950s, uh, the Reserve Mining Company was a joint venture of three different large iron mine companies. And so what they had decided to do with the tailings uh, was basically to take them down and they built this new town called Silver Bay, which is just uh, uh, north of Duluth, probably about uh, 30 miles. And um, they built this really long chute. And if you drive along the North Shore Drive, when you get to Silver Bay, you'll see this big long uh, chute coming from a hill at the top of town over towards Lake Superior. And from this, this is where they would take and they would run all the tailings and they would just shoot it straight down into the lake. And in the 1950s, everybody thought this was great because it was a way to preserve uh, jobs in the Mesabi Range so that the miners that had lost their positions at the Vermilion Range and at the Kuna Range, they could move and they could start uh, mining and uh, feed their families. Um, because this was the main industry in northeastern Minnesota. I mean, there was fishing and camping and hiking and stuff like that. But this is kind of what paid the bills, paid the taxes and all that. So it was really a vital industry. And um, so it, was, it seemed like a good deal for everybody. But then in the early 1960s, uh, there had been like a really great herring fishery in uh, Lake Superior. 
because they were small fish, they would also feed other fish like lake trout and some of the other things that um, that we would feed. We would fish, to, you know, as in the resorts, and also commercial fisheries would would uh, take the larger fish. But they were starting to see that the halls were getting smaller and smaller, and started investigating. And scientists were taking a look down um, into the area around Silver Bay to see if they could determine what happened. And then the bottom of the lake, they were seeing coatings of materials from the tailings that were preventing the herring from hatching. And so it was killing, killing the, the herring fishery. And so they started taking their concerns and it was a classic environmentalist versus the town type of situation where uh, the environmentalists kind of considered wackos that were trying to tell them how to run their lives and they needed to have their jobs and all that stuff. And so the environmentalists that were raising concern and the fishermen that were raising concerns about what the environmental effects of the tailings were, uh, were not getting very far <clears throat> until they brought in some, some uh, people to do water testing to see if there was anything in the water. And they discovered that there was a form of asbestos that was in the water. And so it must have been an element that was is the rock and this part of the rock in the, in the taconite. The thing about it is that um, back then, uh, Duluth and Superior, which are two large cities right at the um, very Western corner peak of Lake Superior for the water supply for the city, drinking water, um, and what they would take in for you know, laundry and all that kind of stuff that was coming directly from the lake. It wasn't processed. They didn't have like a water uh, cleaning system like we do in, in our modern uh, municipal water systems. And so if you open up the tap, the water that had been taken up into the tower and that was dropped down into the line to give you water pressure, it was just coming through the lake. And so they discovered that there was asbestos in the water. Well, this was also at the time that we knew that um, there was asbestos can cause different types of cancer. And so the researchers took their results and they went to the EPA. And EPA in 1973, I think it was in 1973, the EPA was formed by uh, the Nixon administration. I think so. And uh, so they took the results to the EPA and the EPA went to the Reserve Mining Company and said, well, you're going to give cancer to everybody in Duluth and Superior if you don't find a way to dispose of the tailings a different way. And uh, the Reserve Mining Company said, well, there is no other. We looked at all kinds of alternatives and there's nothing available. So we have to do this, otherwise people are going to lose their jobs and we won't be able to build any more skyscrapers. And so then the EPA um, took them to court in 1973. And there was a, a year-long trial and it, you know, was one of those things where it uh, set, um, there was a judgment and the judge was uh, Judge Miles Lord. And I remember a lot of this stuff from reading the newspapers when I was a kid. It was like in the Daily um, Star Tribune. There was always an article about Reserve Mining Company. So by the end of the year, uh, Judge Miles Lord handed out a ruling that said that the Reserve Mining Company had to stop dropping their tailings into Lake Superior. Um, and of course, the Reserve Mining Company appealed it, and, and the process took about seven years. There was a, an alternative site that had been discovered by geologists that would work satisfactorily at a place called Milepost 7, and um, they proposed, they, the EPA proposed this site to Reserve Mining Company. At first, Reserve Mining Company said, no, that won't work. Um, and it's not too far away from Silver Bay. And I'm not sure which road it's on, but it's, gonna, it's called uh, Milepost 7. And it's basically just a um, uh, pond that they can dump it in. And in 1980, it was finally ruled that this was a satisfactory solution. And both the Reserve Mining Company and the EPA agreed that they could, uh, instead of dropping the tailings into Lake Superior, they put them in at Milepost 7. And, um, and that's basically how that turned out. So, so that sounds like, it sounds like it was an important milestone in environmental regulation. It was actually the first, the first time that a government agency or a federal government agency 
that actually sued on behalf of the environment, environment and actually made a case and won. Thank you for downloading and listening to Iconocast, the Science and Advocacy Podcast. I want to let you know that episode 31 is some more conversation between Greg and I on a lot of issues related to the environment, uh, especially in northern Minnesota. So watch for that pretty soon. It'll be episode 31. And thanks again. Share, talk about it, let people know that you like it, and send feedback if you don't. Not sure that I'll do anything about it, but, you know, send feedback. Appreciate it. Thank you.